Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Coffee with a friend is like capturing joy in a cup. Welcome to the Coffee with Jenny B podcast, hosted by Jenny B, a lover of all things coffee. Each week, Jenny will chat about connecting over coffee, what brings her joy, and everything in between. A lot can happen over coffee, so grab a cup, sit back, and enjoy. Now here's your host, Jenny B. Hello and welcome to the show. When we're little boys and girls, we dream of perhaps one day being the next Wayne Gretzky or being one of the superstars in the athletic world. Some of us do make it to the Olympics and some of us are content to exercise and compete on our own terms. When you think about what makes up an athlete, you know, the ones that actually push themselves and make it to the top stage, to the Olympics, I looked up what makes up an athlete. And these are some of the characteristics, desire, motivation, concentration, positive mindset, and confidence, knowing that they have a goal in mind. And no matter what, that goal is not going to stop them. In fact, they are going to push out 150% to meet that goal. But what if you're an athlete that has some bodily differences? I'm talking specifically about a Paralympian. Now, I looked up the definition of what a Paralympian is, and they are courageous. They have heart and soul to the core. They overcome obstacles that the average person will never understand. That is so inspiring to me knowing that you have some bodily differences that perhaps would stop, I would say most of us, myself included, I have to admit, about pushing myself forward. But there are those that really push themselves and they have not only courage to the core, heart and soul, but all the other characteristics of what makes up an athlete. And my special guest today is someone who embodies all of that. His name is Colin Matheson, and he is a four-time Paralympian in Canada. He's been competing since 1995, so do the math. And Colin is going to share with us some of his highs, perhaps some of his lows, and everything in between. Please help me welcome Colin. Hey, Colin. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You're welcome. I'm so pleased that you're here. Our mutual friend, uh, Brenda Bournes, suggested that I interview you. And of course, I looked up some of your your history and your accomplishments, but you're also a a fellow coffee lover, a Starbucks lover to be exact. So I thought, well, bonus. So let's talk. (laughs) 
Sounds great. How did you get started in wheelchair athletics? I was, uh, geez, I, I think about all of the different influences that I've had growing up. And there are so many different components to, to where I am today. It's kind of like a, a really intricate recipe. I was, I was uh, born with spina bifida. Uh, so that's my my physical disability. Right from the the beginning, my family was very uh, very conscious of of me being as active as possible. And you know, you talk about the difference between an athlete and a Paralympic athlete, or an athlete and a Paralympic athlete, and somebody who isn't. It's amazing because that drive and that determination, that willingness to just be the best you possibly can. The Paralympic athlete, the Olympic athlete, and the non athlete, I think they, they still share so many commonalities because, uh, you know, we're all just trying to figure out how to be the best version of ourselves that we can. And, and I found an amazing platform to do that through, through wheelchair racing and through sport in general. I got my start from very, very early on where I had the luxury of watching the Manitoba Marathon and it was right out my doorstep. And so I remember one of my most vivid memories of, of sport, my very first memories of sport, is my parents plopping me down on the front steps and we got to watch these, what I can only describe as gladiator wheelchair racers <laughs> in the early 80s with very limited technology, you know, just grinding out the last third of a marathon through St. Patel. Yeah. You know, that just, it stuck with me. And and then I was very fortunate to have somebody like Rick Hansen do his Man in Motion tour shortly after that first sort of that first visual that I had. And I remember following him in the newspapers and on the news and just tracking him as he went around the world. It took him two and a, two and a bit years. And it was it was amazing. It was so inspiring. And it's interesting you mentioned um, Rick Hansen as being an inspiration for you. I would say that he has been an inspiration for many of us and many who are not considered Paralympians or who have uh, possibly um, some disabilities, but just that drive and that determination and that goal, you know, like it's that goal that he had that I'm doing this and I'm doing this for myself. And, and even though he may have thought that along the way, I'm inspiring all these people about my courage and determination, he still put himself out there. And that's amazing that, well, I'm not surprised that he's one of your heroes um, that, you know, he was able to inspire you that, well, if he can do it, maybe I can too. Absolutely. And I think one, one of my, my biggest takeaways from, from Rick Hansen and why he is, uh, why I hold him in such high regard is because he's one of the, one of the few examples that he, he wasn't good for a guy in a wheelchair or he wasn't good for a guy with a disability, or he wasn't just good as a Paralympian. He did something that nobody nobody's ever done before. Like I don't know too many people in history that have walked around the world. No. <laughs> regardless of whether he was in a wheelchair, regardless of what mode of transportation he used, he still holds a very elite uh, elite status that I don't think anybody else has ever even done it. Period. And when you think about endurance, you know, oh my goodness, you know, um, I used to run. I would do ten k's, and I think in my lifetime, I've done maybe twelve half marathons. And I remember, you know, some of them went actually really well, uh, depending on the training, depending on how I felt that day, but some of them were a real grind. And I remember this one particular race where I didn't think I could finish. And, and I mean, I'm able-bodied and I trained and all the rest of it. And so thinking back on that experience and then thinking about what 
Rick Hansen and what other wheelchair athletes and yourself included, that didn't stop you. I mean, I'm sure that there were days when you just didn't feel like doing it. And yet you pushed yourself and said, no, there's that drive. So what, I mean, aside from everything else, what was that drive inside that said, no, I, I need to push through and I need to do this? Well, I, uh, I'd like to think that I'm, I'm driven, but I'm probably more stubborn than, than driven. <laughs> as, a, as a young kid, you've got more energy than, than necessarily planning. You know, I love to go fast. I fell in love with, uh, with chasing my personal best. And li- living in Winnipeg, we had, uh, starting out, we had a really, a really healthy team where there was always somebody to race or chase in practice. And then there was competitions throughout the year where you could sort of kind of like an exam where you do all the hard work studying, and then you get to see how it's going to play out (laughs) for real. And one of the things that happened though, is that uh, I sort of reached a level where I had my own personal coach. I, I was following my own plan and I didn't really have that, that team setting around me. And one of the things it forced me to do is it forced me to change what I was looking for in success because I didn't have somebody with me to to chase. Oh, okay. So I became a, more of a connoisseur of just building a plan and trying to stick with a plan, knowing full well that throughout a year or throughout even a quadrennial, which is how they measure the, the Paralympics every four years, you know that things are going to change, you know, 60 times on, like you said, those good days, those bad days. You never know based on real life and, and your own health. You never know what kind of a day you're going to have, but you know you have to train. It was really a, a big challenge on uh, setting reasonable expectations, setting ambitious goals, and then rolling with the punches. I did the marathon uh, this past weekend, the half marathon. I completely understand and empathize exactly what you uh, what you described. I I've had marathons that, for whatever reason, my training leading up to it or just my overall health, I was in better or worse shape. And sometimes I breeze through it and it's fun right till the end. Other times, whether it's the extreme heat like we had this year or whether it's uh, the rain or or whatever, I, I I have grind what I would call grinded out a few that they were certainly not, you didn't put those ones in your picture book. <laughs> no, definitely not. But, you know, when they, when they talk about... Uh, I think back when they talk about the bombers, you know that uh, yeah, the bombers won, but it was a it was an ugly win, but it's a win. Like you said, when you're grinding through, you still cross the finish line, and it's like okay, well, that wasn't my personal best, not even close to my personal best, but I crossed the finish line. I didn't give up, and I think that not giving up, that determination that you're going to see it through, is you're right. I mean, whether it's your Olympian, a Paralympian, or someone who just the average person, it's if you have the desire to finish, to compete, well, not compete, I guess, but well, compete with yourself maybe, but to complete that goal. That, that I think is that accomplishment. It's like, yeah, you cross. I remember where, where was it? I was running a race. It was actually my first half marathon. It's 2005 in San Diego. It was the first time I'd ever run a half marathon. And I remember as soon as I crossed the finish line, I burst into tears <laughs> and just started crying. And I'm not sure if it was like I was relieved or, you know, tired, or maybe it was just the whole, my gosh, I can't believe I did my first half marathon. There's all kinds of emotions that, that go through you, aren't there? There are. And there's this, um, whether it be your first one or your last one, I don't know which one is better because you have this 
not agony, but uh, this this excitement slash nervousness of if you've never actually done one, you don't really know what you're supposed to feel like throughout the, <laughs> you know, the five the five k mark, the ten k mark, the twenty k mark, whichever. It's a little bit of uncharted territory, and it doesn't surprise me that you were emotional when you finally get to the finish. I actually did the San Diego Marathon back in two thousand and one. And it's the only full marathon I've ever done. And I just remember telling myself that we're almost done. It's just around the corner. And I was about, and I was about a third of the way through. Oh my God. You have to tell yourself that, you know, you're, it sounds silly to to think of it this way, but I always think that I'm, after a while, it throughout a a long race, I'm closer to the finish line than I am the start line to to quit. (laughs) That's right. I could go back to the car, but it's now it's further than if I had just finished it. (laughs) So now you have no choice. You have to finish. It's like, well, what am I going to do, exactly. right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, it's funny you mentioned about uh, it's just around the corner. Uh, I'll never forget. And you know what? Bless their hearts. The the people on the course, whether it's volunteers or whether it's, you know, race officials or what have you. And they're the ones that are courageous. Like, yeah, keep going. They're clapping. And it's like, you know, it's just around the corner. Two more blocks. <laughs> like, two more, honest, two more blocks. And you're like, okay, you're lying, but... I, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> That's literally the same story that I was just going to say. I, I, there was, I remember vividly this person yelling with a sign, good, keep it up. You're doing good. You're almost done. And I've got a little computer on my chair that tells me how many kilometers I've done. And I know I have to do, you know, 42, 42 kilometers. And I, I think she was yelling at around 26 or 27. I thought mathematically I'm past the halfway point, but I still feel you're not telling me everything. <laughs> but you just smile and say, thanks, thanks. You take that level of enthusiasm, yeah. even if it's inaccurate and, and you roll with it. <laughs> you know, I, I want to go back to that 2005 marathon in San Diego. It was actually, it wasn't in San Diego. It was um, Orange County, I want to say maybe. Oh yeah. What's interesting is if it was in January. It was in January. And of course, you know, Winnipeg is like what they call it winter peg for a reason. At that day, it was 84 degrees, I think, which was even warm for California. And I remember I was running, I had a, I had a tank top and I had shorts and I had, I think I had a tattoo of Canada, the Canadian flag on my, on my leg. And I had something else that showed I was from Canada. And then I remember seeing everybody else who was not from Canada they're wearing like UGG boots and they're wearing, you know, parkas and you know, for them it's cold. Right. And, and I'm just like, and I remember when I, when I was running down running and people would pass me, it's like, Hey, Canada, go Canada. I just always remember that it was 84 degrees and I was, you know, in my glory and not being back home in Winnipeg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you, you know, you make a, you make a good point that the, uh, the Paralympics are a summer sport, but in a lot of cases, if you if you're racing in the southern hemisphere, you're racing in their summer. It doesn't always equate to to ours. Oh, right. You're, you're running in forty degrees, right? So, so in a lot of cases, I'm preparing for the summer Paralympics at the end of our summer, at the beginning of the next summer in the southern hemisphere. So, I remember a couple times uh, training in like late October, early November for for the Paralympics, like when they were in Sydney. Oh, wow. It was definitely interesting because I was training in, you know, 15 degrees and raining and I was about to compete in 40 degrees and sunny. It's, uh, wow. it's definitely a challenge. And I'm not sure about how, uh, how you prepared for that marathon, but, uh, 
the the other challenge too is that for six months out of the year, if you stay in Canada, mm-hmm. you you have you have to train indoors. Mm-hmm. Like there, you're not you're not running outside for half a marathon in February. No, no, definitely not. I I eventually had to um, start training down south just to basically get twelve month training seasons that were that were comparable to where I was going to be racing. No, you're right. I mean, because, you know, our summers are very short and some the fall can be good. I mean, September, October and even the spring, like sometimes the spring can can be good weather to, to train in. But you're right. During the winter, um, I remember that I had a membership at the Refit Center and I remember uh, running indoors on their track and people who are not runners, they don't get this concept, but it's that second wind. Right. So for me, the first, I'd say 10, 15 minutes of my run is I'm just like huffing and puffing. Like I'm, I've never run in my life and thinking, Oh my gosh, I, I'm, I'm just going to give up because I can't do it. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get that second wind and you get, and then, and it's like your body is just gliding and you feel like you can just go on forever. And I absolutely love, love, love that feeling. And I'm, I really miss it because I don't run anymore. Yeah, in a wheelchair, it's very similar. You've got the, um, you've got sort of a different pattern of how you're pushing, and there is certainly when you finally get into that groove. And you're right; it's after a couple kilometers of just get, you know, feeling the road and headwinds, uphill, whichever, whatever is sort of challenging you. There is a just a nice, wonderful groove that you slide into, and it's it's you glide, you glide differently. What was your best race? Oh, that's a great question. I don't necessarily qualify it as my best race. I have a, a Canadian record that I broke in Switzerland in in 2009. And so that's technically the fastest I've ever gone. But I've had a couple races uh, that either meant more or I feel like, you know, we were talking about the differences of, of an ugly race versus a, a clean race. And so I feel there's a few that I have earned more so than than others. <laughs> okay. And there's other times where just the 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 vibe on the track, the the competitors, the wind, the the quality of the track, everything was just in sync. So I I've, I've got a Canadian record in in Switzerland as I just mentioned, but I've also got this one race that stands out in Winnipeg and it was shortly after I moved back to Winnipeg. I started training with a local coach here named Alec Gardner. He breathed life into me that at a point where I thought that I was getting close to being done. And I raced in Winnipeg with my family watching and I had the runners running with me, which was kind of fun because I'd never really done that before. As a Paralympic athlete, I always raced just against wheelchair racers. Right. Yeah. It turns out that in a 400 meter, they are so much quicker than me off the start. My start is kind of like a semi-trailer moving through the 18 years. I will get up to my top speed, but it's not as immediate. And so I remember chasing these kids for like 250 meters. And then I started reeling them in and it was so much fun. And it was just, it was so exciting because, you know, I was so far back and then I was a little less far back and then I was equal. We came around that last corner and it was literally just a race of who had more gas in their tank. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that will stand out as one of the one of the best races I've ever had in my life. You know what? And I can I can tell why it was one of your best. I mean, like you said, just the fact that you're racing with other 
athletes and not just other wheelchair athletes and your family and your back home. And when you cross the finish line with all the other racers, how did that feel? I think I won by by about half of my chair length. So we're talking not not photo finish, but pretty darn close considering what it looked like at the beginning. <laughs> you know what? And a couple of the athletes were uh, were actually coached by my coach as well. He was an able-bodied coach. There was this sort of camaraderie, the high fives at the end and you know, and the the joke at the end too was, uh, you know, this time I got them, but the previous time I hadn't. And 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 I'll, I remember one of the guys I still I still keep in touch with after after all those years. He talks about the noise that my wheelchair makes, and he could hear me coming from behind. And he said it it was just terrifying because he knew that I was going to try and pass him, but he couldn't quite tell. I guess based on the noise, he couldn't tell how close I was. <laughs> I had the luxury of seeing him in my sights so I could see how I was reeling him in, but I guess he couldn't see how close I was until it was way too late and I passed him. <laughs> Sounds like one of those horror movies. <laughs> yeah, it's like Jaws popping out of the water. <laughs> Have you ever thought... I'd love to have a podcast just like this one. Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. And, and like you talk about the camaraderie and the support and, and that's part of it too. I mean, you know, you know, everything that, are, that we've talked about in terms of your perseverance or determination, that desire to, you know, see it through and all that, but it's, it's the support, you know, you talked about your, your parents supporting you as a young child and, and getting, you know, staying active, the other racers that you, you train with and your coach and what about your immediate family those closest around you do you do you still see that support and is that as just as important now as it was before absolutely what i would consider my team is uh it's uh it's a pretty pretty exclusive group there aren't too many of them but the the ones that are there my my wonderful wife my family has been behind me since i first even thought about racing based on i think that they led me down this path at the beginning and uh, and showed me what was possible. So they were technically part of my team before I had a team. <laughs> and uh, no, I've I've had a, I've had a ton of amazing partnerships and uh, and relationships in sport where people were just instrumental in in helping me chase chase some of these dreams that I had. I had a sponsor very early on, and I remember I got my first uh, three wheeled racing chair. And that was a game changer at the time because it was the early 90s and I had still been pushing in a four-wheeled racing chair, which weighed more than I did. And uh, it didn't even have steering or brakes. And all of a sudden, I'm getting measured up and, and I'm racing in this thing that looks like a Formula One car in comparison. And and it's, you know, it's those those steps where they seem so organic now as as far as just the the trajectory of a high performance athlete but they were they were just monumental in the moment and it does make a difference you know and i and i i can't even imagine you racing as you say with you know wheelchair and the big clunky wheelchair and still being able to do it and now 
racing or I guess, you know, trying the, the three-wheeler, we talked about technology a little bit. So how has it improved since that that first three-wheel wheelchair or the racing wheelchair? So how has that improved for you now? Like, what are you racing with now? All right. Well, we, we like I, as I mentioned, we started with uh, with a racing wheelchair that had four wheels, no steering, no brakes, and they were they were made out of a version of steel. So they were basically a modified old wheelchair. One of the pioneers in sport, his name is George Murray. He partnered with an a new out of school engineer. They were constantly tinkering with this chair and they, you know, they put a steering mechanism on it and then they put brakes so you could safely go down the hill. And all of a sudden they had this great idea to run one wheel out front instead of the two. And it's amazing because all of a sudden you, it's a wheelchair in the sense that it's a chair and it's got wheels and a person with a disability arguably sits in it. So that's the, but that's the last thing it actually has in common with a wheelchair. <laughs> okay. They started making them out of uh, aircraft aluminum and uh, they dabbled in some other exotic materials. And most recently, the Formula One racing teams have gotten involved in in pushing the envelope further and using some pretty exotic materials and uh, and some pretty neat design features. It's going to be the next step in the in the process. That's amazing. It, it makes me think almost like, a, you know, the wheelchair being aerodynamic. Yeah, you get as far as you can. As a, as a person muscularly or with endurance, you know, then you start looking at all of the other ways to exploit, like your bearings have to, to roll a little bit better or your tires roll a little bit less resistance. And, and aerodynamics plays a huge role because it's the one bearings and aerodynamics are the only two things that are literally always there. If your wheels are moving, you've got resistance. And if you're moving forward, you've got wind pushing against you. So <laughs> it's all science, right? It is. And it's, um, you know, the, the Formula One, the race car technology, we, we might not be going 200 miles an hour, but there's certainly, there are a lot of commonalities with surface area and trying to, you can't keep the air from hitting you, but what you can do is you can try and redirect it and sort of cheat it. So it's not hitting you square. The The most recent chair that I saw, it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. He it's, there isn't a single edge on this chair. Even even the the individual is sitting in a different position now. Wow! So everything is is sort of rounded and smooth, and yeah, and I guess that makes sense too because you know when I think about something that's square, it doesn't really flow. It kind of all, almost stops the flow. Versus everything is kind of rounded and smooth, and it allows that flow, like you see the wind and and whatnot to go around. So yeah, I can see why it would make a big difference. Yeah, and we uh, when I lived in Quebec, we were doing a. Uh, a funded program to try and, and further the, the design of racing wheelchairs. And we got to spend a, a day at the National Research Council's air uh, wind tunnel. Oh, okay. So we went from, I was living in Sherbrooke, we went to Ottawa for the day. It was really neat because they throw you in this wind tunnel and rather than pushing you, they send the wind around you. Oh. <laughs> and what they were able to do is they were able to to quantify a lot of things that we felt that we knew, but you they they weren't science enough. You get feelings when you're when you've pushed the same way for for twenty years. You know when your wheels have bearings that need to be replaced, or you know when your tires aren't quite full and and stuff like that. But at the same time, it was just a it was a new level of precision that we were sort of narrowing down. It turns out that uh, the person in the racing wheelchair is the worst 
aerodynamic component of the whole thing. <laughs> and it's, it's because it's because your shoulders are so wide compared to the rest of the profile that when, even when you're sitting completely tucked in, you're still getting a huge percentage of the wind hitting you in the chest. Despite all your efforts, you're still a bit of a, a windsock or a parachute. And and so what do you do in that instance? I mean, do you change your clothing? Do you, do you lose weight? Like uh, what, what can you do to minimize that? Well, there's a few things. There's, um, there's what they call the, the weight to power ratio. It's a bit of a, a double-edged sword because you can get stronger, but if you build more muscle, you often end up gaining more weight because muscle weighs a certain amount. So you, you sort of, you, you straddle this fine line between getting stronger, but bigger, you you find your happy place. And for me, it wasn't a number on the scale. It wasn't a BMI. It was more of a, how I felt in my chair. When I talk about my, my fastest race in Switzerland, I just, for whatever reason, you know, my, my diet, my weight training, my cardio, everything up until then had just, it had gone well. And so I was, I was sitting in a, in a good place. Like literally sitting in a good place. <laughs> literally sitting in a good place. Yeah. And my racing chairs too. Like I, I can appreciate the idea of bigger, better, faster, more aerodynamic, more fancy materials. But I think that they're, they're shortchanging the athlete by continuing down that road because of the, the cost of the wheelchairs. You know, they're, they're now 20000 or $30,000. Oh my goodness. Wow which is just ridiculous. Like there's no, no kid on the face of the earth is going to be able to afford that to get their start, which means they're going to have to be racing in something lesser than, and the likelihood of them, you know, as, as a pair of equivalent hand-me-down skates, it's fine when you're at the, when you're at the, uh, the local rink and you've got your, you know, your, your big brothers or your big sisters skates, but you can't you can't compete at a high performance level with that kind of hand me down like the 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 discrepancy is just too great and it's unfortunate because my canadian record that i did was uh, it was in a chair that was built in in a, a little town in georgia and i i always joke that it was built with love i went down there on a monday they built the chair around me over the week and i went home with it on i think saturday oh that's amazing it was just the attention to detail, the quality of the materials that they were they had access to, and and it was properly fitted, and it uh, it made all the difference in the world. So you were one with the chair, so to speak. I was, and I have this this reoccurring feeling when I'm in my current chair that is, it's just not quite the same, and I don't know whether that's me as my body changing or my maybe my memory of what that really felt like is uh, is, is skewed, but I, I don't think I've ever had a chair that felt quite as good as that one. And that's a good memory to have. And I want to disagree that your memory is skewed. I, I think your memory is pretty accurate because when you think about those moments in your life, those special moments, and there's there's always that one or two that really stand out for you. And for me, I, I, I want to say that it's as if I'm living in that moment at that time when I recollect. And, and they say that memory, sometimes we we make up stuff that we thought had happened, but I truly believe that when it's a really special moment, you're remembering the cell, the smells, the the sounds, the the feeling. You know, it, it's as if you're in that moment at that time. Absolutely, and uh, and that's one of the challenges is that you can't, without a time machine, you can't replicate the past. You can learn from the past. You can you can follow a, a similar plan, but you can't. You'll never you'll never recreate that that individual day. No, no. 
it's definitely a, it's a good memory and it's a good um, benchmark for chasing that result within me. It's I could uh, I could probably spend another thirty years out at the track trying trying to duplicate that, and I'll probably never get it. But I'd sure like to try. We're lucky when we have at least that one really good memory, that really good moment in time when we can look back and say, you know what, that was a pretty special time. It sure does. I, I look at back at some of my memories and and I realize, geez, that was not last week, and uh, and then I think that wasn't even this last decade. And then I keep on going back, and I, you get a sense of feeling old. <laughs> <laughs> and these young kids that uh, you know, when you when you spend thirty thirty plus years in sport, you go from being the the little fish in the big pond, and then you end up having this sort of peak of your career where you're the big fish in the in the big pond and all of these little fish start uh, getting bigger and getting faster and you go from chasing people to try and win for the first time to trying not to let the little kid beat you. <laughs> that's right. It's like, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> what I'm starting to appreciate is that's the the natural progression and the the full circle is that, you know, I have to appreciate that at one point I was the little kid chasing the big guys and and it did not it doesn't end well for the big guy eventually. <laughs> and you know what, Colin, this is actually a really good segue into something else that I wanted to um talk to you about because since uh now, since you stopped racing, did you Well, first of all, I want to clarify I have not officially retired yet. Oh, okay. All right. I'm <laughs> <laughs> okay. I I'm I'm still exploring my options. Oh, good for you. Okay. Well I I, I think retirement is a uh, it's a dangerous word. Because uh, it took it took me thirty years to to get where I am, and I don't necessarily want to pick a random day and say that I'm done, because I think there's so much more that that physical exercise and and sport in itself can can still provide, even if it's not at that high performance level. Of course, and it reminds me a little bit of a bell curve. I was I was thinking when I was out doing the marathon the other day, I kind of feel like I'm coming full circle. I, I started out just having fun. With with no expectations, no Paralympics on the on the horizon, no no sponsor obligations and stuff like that, and or contractual obligations. When I went out to do the marathon the other day, it was just me and my cyclist that was leading me, who happened to be a, a good buddy of mine, and a course that I absolutely loved. And whether I did it in under an hour, which was my goal, or whether I did it in an hour and three minutes, there wasn't tens of thousands of dollars of funding dependent on that. I was just out having fun testing. I was testing myself. Yeah. Seeing what I could do in that moment in the same way that when I was nine years old and I did my first one, I was seeing what I could do in that moment. Very nostalgic. I know. And, and I, and I totally understand. And you're right. I, I, I shouldn't have thought that you would, you would stop racing because <laughs> once it's in your blood, you know, and, and whatever it is, and you know what, and I know I, I said, I, you know, I stopped marathons and whatnot. Uh, the last time I actually ran was 2007, and I haven't I haven't run since then. And I keep thinking that maybe I'd like to take it up, even even if I just not not even compete five ten five k ten k's, but just to just to go and and run around the the neighborhood. Yeah, absolutely. I want to say that you well, you, first of all, you have your own business, so Colin Matheson Consulting, and you got into social work. I always knew, and and it's it's funny because you talk about these dreams of going to the NHL and when you're younger and and playing in the pro leagues. I had a very realistic expectation that no matter what happened, even if you won at the Paralympics, nobody was going to ever 
offer you a $10 million endorsement. One of the things that I always sort of, I had my eye on was the reality that I was going to have to get a real job no matter what happened. And it's good because it, what it did was I, I sort of, for my entire racing career, I, I diversified in, you know, getting different experiences that I knew were going to pay off when it came time to to move on and, and try something else as my primary responsibility or primary uh, sort of goal. In this particular case, I took like one course every semester for like 10 years to get my social work degree. Oh, good for you. And uh, it was funny because in, in 2007, I moved to Quebec to get ready for the, the Paralympics in 2008. One of the criteria, they found me uh, a house to stay in. They found me all sorts of, they streamlined uh, the process. One of the criteria was, is that I had to continue my schooling. I didn't want to, I didn't want to stop. I didn't want to stop because of the fact that I was chipping away at this so slowly that even one or two years off was going to be two years down the road that, that I was going to be out there do, trying to finish my degree longer. But I also think that a well-rounded athlete, we always joke that a happy athlete is a fast athlete. And in a lot of cases, the uh, if I had only track and field or, or only athletics to focus on your your good days and your bad days are pretty epic because there's nothing else. It's kind of like investing in one stock and then watching the stock market. And on any given day, your stock goes up or it goes down and you have nothing to diversify, nothing to offset it. I always loved working with people. I really enjoyed working with the disabled population. I thought that there were there were so many, not gaps, but things that could be done better as far as options, choices, um, and just different ways to go about doing what we've always done the same way with less than ideal results. Okay, that makes sense. I'm really fortunate. I'm working uh, with Deer Lodge Center now in Winnipeg. I'm the social worker in a really fantastic uh, day program called Prime. One of our big objectives is to to help people and support them in the community to prolong the need for uh, for personal care. It's a huge challenge. Everybody's uh, Everybody that's with us has compounding health issues and it's uh, a challenge, but it's very similar to sport. If you, you, you have a desired outcome and you try and work your way back and figure out how to, how to get there. And you're right. It's, it's, there's a plan and you work the plan and you tweak it as you go along. And, you know, as you say, throughout the years, I mean, your body changes and some things work better than others and you just make it work, you know, back to things being science. It's science. Our bodies are science. And there's a process that you go through to make sure that things are working the way they should. Yeah. And and I think that, uh, you know, I've had enough blowing tires on the start line. I've had enough blowing tires in the middle of a race. I've crashed in the middle of a race. And none of those things are, are necessarily what you would hope for sitting on the start line as you're visualizing how your race is going to play out. But they happen. They happen. And, and you know, in the same way with, with life, ill health and catastrophe happens and I, I was joking with somebody the other day and I, I said, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's not what you've got. It's how you use it. And I was talking about life and it was, we can't be, you know, our younger selves, our entire lives. And, you know, certain body parts are going to decide to to give us grief. And it's uh, what are you, what are you going to do with what you've got right now? No, you're absolutely right. And just because you're getting older doesn't mean that you should stop. You know, you talked about what does retirement really mean? Well, 
I'm technically retired, meaning that I, I'm not working for anybody else. I'm working for myself. So I guess technically I'm an entrepreneur because I'm working for myself. But when you think of someone in their 60s, you know, as I'm 62 and grandmother, and you think about, you know, our grandmothers in our day that, you know, they, they stayed home and they, they knitted and they looked after their grandchildren and, you know, they played bingo. And for all the grandmothers out there that do that and love it, I applaud you. But not all grandmothers are the same, you know. So for me, I'm, I teach Zumba. I'm an instructor at the university. Of course, I'm doing this podcast, which somebody had said to me even a year ago, well, you're going to do this. I would have said, you're crazy. But things happen and opportunities come up and you just, you either jump at it or you say no. And when yeah. you jump at it, you make the best of it. And that's that's what I'm doing. And it sounds like that's what you're doing too. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you get to those those crossroads where you uh, you have to make a decision and, and you have to be excited and satisfied with the the options that you take. And you know what? At the same time, you have to be you have to be satisfied with the ones that you pass up because it just might not have been the right option. It might not have been the right time. And you never know, it might, it might become the right decision later. And that's one of the reasons why I say that I'm not retired is that if I have a feeling that once I say I'm retired, then I'll be officially in that next stage and, I, and I'll be looking at everything else in the rearview mirror. Right. And so you're not quite ready to do that. No. And, and, and training and, and staying in shape are, are the, they're the building blocks or the, the recipe for, for sport. I can still do those after I'm no longer competing, you know, as I step further back from the competition side, I don't want to, I don't want any excuses to just stop training. So, and you're right. I mean, you know, we're saying in terms of, you know, it's exercise and it's looking after our bodies. And as we age, it's even more important that we maintain that level of fitness. And I guess I have this feeling that I don't think you'll ever retire from, and not just from competing, but just, you'll never stop doing what you love. And, and really that's at the heart of it, isn't it? Is that you love what you're doing. And the, uh, the difference between the, what the 10 year old training, you know, once a week to the, the 30 year old training every day or twice a day. And now at 43, I'm training a couple days a week just for fun. And uh, you know, as long as it, it doesn't matter that it looks different. It's that it matches whatever the, the picture you want it to match. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, you know, when you think about exercise in general, you know, they say the best kind of ex exercise is getting out for a walk, um, if you're able to walk, or going out for a race of your own and just for fun. And isn't it great just to do it for fun? It is. And like I say, I've, I've trained uh, by myself for the majority of my career. I got used to it. I figured out how to make it entertaining when it needed to be entertaining. I forced myself to make it challenging when I need it to be challenging. And uh, you know what? I'm, I'm back to, to training and I've got a goal, like for example, the marathon. And it went from trying to break a, a record or, or anything sort of tangible to just, I just wanted to finish feeling the way that I wanted to finish. There you go. I love that. Now, Brenda, um, so totally changing the subject. Brenda said that you are a lover of coffee. And I think I, and I mentioned in the intro that you love Starbucks. So how did your love of Starbucks begin? Oh, my love for Starbucks. That's uh, that's a good one. When I, uh, I spent a lot of time all over the world, 
the one variable other than the food was the coffee. And the goal was always to try and find a really good cup of coffee, especially when you're uh, trying to overcome the jet lag. You know, you fly for 17 hours and you go through a dozen time zones. It's uh, where you end up. It's uh, it's not even looking at the watch and trying to figure out what time it is. It's what day is it? <laughs> yeah. And so, so coffee, you know, in order to, to make it through that first day to get back on your, on a regular sleep routine, you often had a couple cups of coffee and I love coffee. I love the taste of it. And one of the things with Starbucks then, and I'm not sponsored by them in any way, shape or form, but, but what, one of the things with Starbucks is that it's consistent no matter where you go. That's true. I've had Starbucks in Dubai. I've had Starbucks in Australia. I've had Starbucks all over the US, all over Europe and North America as well. And they work really hard to keep that that level of quality and that expectation there for you. And it's uh, they've never under-delivered. I used to work at Starbucks. I, I was a barista for four years and because I loved it so much. And I learned a lot about Starbucks. And you're right. The reason that it is the same, no matter what country or or even what what store you are in the same city, is that because it's all owned by Starbucks. So, you know, when you have someone that owns a franchise, you know, they're supposed to do things the same way, but they tend to do things a little different. So it's not quite the same versus now if the formula is the same across the world, you're right, whether you're in Dubai and Switzerland or Winnipeg, if you're getting, you know, a Sumatra, it's a Sumatra and it's going to taste the same. <laughs> And I'm I'm even more impressed that if you buy, I love to go out and get my coffee. There's a, there, you know, it's a ritual in itself to have somebody else make you your coffee. Um, but even the coffee that we brew at home, like we, uh, when we brew Starbucks, it tastes awfully close to what Starbucks provides. It's, and considering that we're not using a, we're not using a hundred thousand dollar machine at home, their, their consistency is just remarkable. What is your favorite, uh, favorite coffee from Starbucks? In the summertime, I like either the uh, the iced coffees every once in a while or more, more than I stop by Starbucks sometimes on my way home from work. And uh, I really have gotten in, in love with those uh, refreshers. Oh, those are good. They are very tasty. I'll treat myself to one of those every once in a while. Um, but no, I like just a, a nice quality dark roast. Mm-hmm. My wife got me one of those, um, the siphon... Uh, the siphon machines. Oh, okay. The the one that uh, that reverses it, like reverse dumps the mixes the grounds in the with the the steam. Oh, okay. I can't remember. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but um, it makes a unbelievably smooth cup of coffee. It takes a lot of work to get it set up, though, and even more time to clean it after I'm done. So. I don't, I don't have that as my regular coffee, but, but it's a treat. And so like a Saturday morning, for instance, or a Sunday morning, you're setting it up, you're, and you're enjoying that perfect cup of coffee, aren't you? Exactly. And, and I, you know, I, I break it out every once in a while with, uh, I love watching formula one every once in a while on a Sunday, it's at six in the morning and I'll brew the the regular pot of coffee to get going. But then after I'm smart enough to, to do the, the complex one, I'll, uh, I'll treat myself to one. Sounds great. And when it comes to coffee, um, I'm I'm just a plain, like I'm actually a, a, a cheap coffee day because when I go to Starbucks and they're like, no, I'll buy you whatever you want. I'll have a tall dark roast and a grande cup with a little bit of cream. That's just, that's just me. <laughs> yeah. 
One of the best memories that I have that probably influences my love for Starbucks is that uh, when I moved back to, to Winnipeg after living in Quebec for five or so years, I was meeting with, uh, with my coach, uh, Alec Gardner. He, was, he wasn't my coach at that point, but I was just asking him. I was picking his brain because he, he held some very, very substantial positions in sports. So he knew all about the dynamics of coaching. He knew about the politics of coaching and all of that. And one of the reasons that I love Starbucks so much is that because when we were sitting one day having a talk about what I should be looking for in my next coach, he looked at me and he said, well, why don't I just coach you? And that I will never forget how I'm just terrified and amazing. And there was about 10 different emotions ripped through me at the same time. It was kind of like asking the minister of, of finance to, to do your taxes. <laughs> I've always held him on such a pedestal based on what he's achieved and just the guy that he is never even dawned on me that as a, what I would call a regular athlete that he would, he would coach me. <laughs> That was actually the the beginning of a of an amazing partnership that that uh, and it happened at a Starbucks. Well, see, there you go. Was, <laughs> and and whether it was because of Starbucks or whether because well, I I, I suspect it it was because of you. I think he, <laughs> he he saw something in you that made him say, uh, well, "What about me? What if I what if what if I coach you?" And yeah. you're know, right. I mean, he didn't have to do that. He could have said, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. I'll get back to you about a coach. And instead he, he looked at you and you know what? And I like to think about the universe sending us signs and something, something about that, maybe that conversation in the coffee shop at Starbucks and the conversation you were having is like, you know, what if I coach you? And the rest is history. It is. And, and you know what? That was, uh, I got faster and older at the same time, which those two things are normally, they don't collide. <laughs> so no. <laughs> so what, whatever he saw in me, it inspired me to, to, to reach a little deeper and, and, uh, and pull a, a better version of myself out too. Oh, I love that. I love that. So what is next for you? Well, I, uh, I gotta go to work tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure. I um I'm I'm still uh still reflecting on the marathon from last week. I'm also still a little sore from last week, which is part of the aging process of uh being an older athlete. I'm not sure. I um I passed up Canadian championships this year. I didn't necessarily feel like uh feel like I was in the the shape that I want to be to go. And uh again, there's no funding anymore. There's no expectations. I'm not con, uh, contractually obligated, so it, if I don't feel it, then I don't go. That in itself is, um, you know, you you watch the deadline looming uh, in front of you on your calendar, and you think, oh, geez, I got to register by this time, and and then I think, do you know what? There's no consequence if I don't. That's true. You you can say no. I looked at my calendar. I had a reminder in there, and it said last day to qualify for Canadian Championships, and I looked at it and I swiped it. Uh, I, I ignored it. And you know what? Here you and I are talking. I'm, I'm happy, uh, happy at work. I, I have a fantastic family. The world didn't end. And I think that those, the more times that you can make those, those tough decisions and be rewarded with either nothing bad happening or something positive happening, it, you know, it reinforces that you, you got this. Now, have you thought about ever being a coach yourself? I have. 
I don't think I'm quite ready to to coach. A coach has to truly have stepped away as an athlete before that works, just because the mindset of being realistic and objective as a coach is the exact opposite of pushing the envelope and like driving it like you stole it uh, as an athlete, just with like reckless abandon. I uh, that's that's not how coaches coach, or that's not how they should coach. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I'm I'm working with uh, Athletics Manitoba right now, helping them out, sort of uh, sort of on a casual basis, trying to get trying to get a program going because I I think that it's uh you know if we have a program, then we could possibly attract a coach. And if we have kids, then we can justify funding for a program. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a chicken and egg type scenario. Then, and, and I, we've I was out in uh, Selkirk last week, two weeks ago maybe, and uh, I uh, I spent the day with uh, with their high school, and they had some athletes that were interested in in Paralympic sport, and so we we ran a little clinic and uh, got everybody in racing wheelchairs, and it was a it was a ton of fun. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Well, you never know what the universe is is going to drop in your lap, and and sometimes you know it's it's you're ready to take up that challenge. And as you say, with the champion, with the the last one that you decided to let go, it's well, maybe now is not the time. Yeah, the universe is a is a pretty uh, complex place, and you know there's there's signs for uh, for going forward, and there's signs to to stop and. I don't know where I'm going to go next, so I'm, I'm just letting it happen. Well, you know what? On that note, I think that um, this is probably the best decision that you're not going to make is just to let it be, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if that makes any sense. <laughs> it sure does to me. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Colin. This has been such a pleasure um, speaking to you and learning um, more about your your successes and your journey. and everything that that has evolved to bring you to the point at being 43 and still enjoying what you're doing and having fun and looking to share that with others. I think that is, that is wonderful. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No, you're welcome. So well, until next time, think about your dreams. What is it that you want to accomplish? What is that one goal that is deep inside of you that you have the drive the determination the desire to complete that for yourself now we don't have to be world-class athletes or paralympians but we can strive to be the best at whatever we want to do thanks so much for listening if you like coffee with jenny b and want to know more connect with jenny on instagram at coffee with jenny b that's jenny with a g Until then, all you need is joy and more coffee. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga, 
It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at averyrich.com.